Well, this morning is, as I've said, uh, a Christian holiday, a very important Christian holiday. Uh, we celebrate, don't we, uh, different events in the life of Jesus. We celebrate Christmas together, that glorious reminder that Jesus, for our sake, became a human being. He was the God-man who came on, uh, into this world to save his people from their sins. We celebrate Good Friday, as we have uh, just recently, that, that uh, reminder that Jesus went to the cross on our behalf to pay for our sins we celebrate Easter, uh, as we did outside a couple of, uh, well, just over a month ago now, that celebration of the fact that Jesus lives. He's been raised from the dead. We don't honor the memory of a dead Savior. We celebrate in the presence of a living Savior. And this morning, uh, six weeks after Easter, we celebrate the ascension of Jesus into the right hand, uh, to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Forty days after Easter, that would, be, would have been Thursday of this past week, is the day that the church has marked out, given the biblical testimony, to, to affirm the ascension of Jesus into heaven. That is, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to consider the ascension of Jesus. Now, the church throughout the ages has affirmed and confessed that Jesus has ascended into the Father's presence. Let me read to you a cross-section of the church's confessions that bear this out. In the Apostles' Creed, if you grew up Catholic or maybe Lutheran, you recited the Apostles' Creed. It's not unique to Catholics. This is one of the ecumenical creeds that all Christians of all generations in every place should be able to affirm. In the Apostles' Creed, it says, Jesus, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from thence he shall come to judge the quick or the living and the dead. That's the Apostles' Creed. A couple hundred years later, the Nicene Creed put it this way, that Jesus ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. Later still in the Athanasian Creed, Jesus ascended into heaven he sitteth on the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. And much uh, further down the road, the uh, great people at our denomination converge as they were coming up with the doctrinal statement that we ascribe to as a church, said, we believe in his, that's Jesus, substitutionary atoning death, bodily resurrection, ascension into heaven, perpetual intercession for his people, and personal visible return to earth. That is part and parcel of our statement of faith. So if you're a member at First Baptist of Newcastle this morning, you have signed up and confessed that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. You have said, I believe that that has happened. But the question that we want to answer this morning isn't merely, did Jesus ascend to God's right hand? What we want to ask this morning is, what does that have to do for right now? We know Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. What does that have to do for me right now? What does it have to do with today? And in order to answer that question, we're going to turn to the book of Hebrews, which is beyond a shadow of a doubt, my favorite book in the entire Bible. Now, let me just tell you at the outset, if your intent is to sit through a sermon on Hebrews without a Bible in front of you, you're going to be lost within five minutes. 
And so let me encourage you to turn to page 1001. Uh, you'll find that uh, this reading on 1001 in the Pew Bibles, right next to the hand sanitizer. No excuses. Everything's good. Squirt that on, 1001, spray in, spray out. You'll be no worse for wear. Hebrews is the book to which we look this morning. And um, Hebrews is a, a fascinating book. It's written to people who are being persecuted for their faith. They're Jewish Christians who are tempted to give up, really, because of how hard it is to follow Jesus. And so in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 32, we get sort of an idea of what's taking place in the lives of these believers. Chapter 10, verse 32 says, Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, i.e., for their faith, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, here it is, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You've got to keep on. Don't give up. And the strength for keeping on in the book of Hebrews is the idea that Jesus is better. He's better. It doesn't matter what you bring in to the arena. When it's squared up with Jesus, Jesus wins every time. So let me give you a loose outline of the book. Chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is better than the angels. No contest. He's better. Chapters 3 and 4, Jesus is better than Moses. And the rest that he gives is better than the rest that was given in the promised land. Jesus is better than Moses or the land. Chapters, uh, end of chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests. He's superior in every possible way. In chapters 8 and 9, there's a little overlap in chapter 8. Jesus brings a better covenant than the Old Covenant. Chapter 10, Jesus offers a better sacrifice than the bulls and goats offered in the Old Testament. It doesn't matter how you cut it. Jesus is better. And so the message of Hebrews is, since Jesus is better than everyone and everything, hold fast and endure until the end. You got to keep on. Now, it's into this incredibly practical context that the writer to the Hebrews mentions the right hand of the Father and Jesus' ascension to that place of honor and authority over and over again. Five times in the letter, he's going to mention the right hand of the Father. We're going to cover all of them this morning. But I just want to point that out at the beginning to show that he's not talking about the ascension of Jesus so that you can get a good grade on a theology exam. All right? He's talking about the ascension of Jesus so that you put one foot in front of the next tomorrow in following Jesus when it gets hard. There's something in the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father which is going to keep you on the path. That's why he's talking about it. That's why I love this book. Jesus is better, so keep on, hold fast, endure to the end. He's at the right hand of the Father. Now, in our time together, here's the big idea I want us to see about the ascension of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. I'm going to call this sermon God's right-hand man, because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. The ascension of Jesus 
to God's right hand means that he is God and king, number one, means that he is high priest, number two, and that he is the founder and perfecter of our faith, number three. That's what we understand about Jesus because he's at God's right hand. And every one of these things that is true about Jesus has practical implications for the way that you live your life today and all the days until glory. So let's look first at this idea that Jesus is God and King shown in the ascension. That's chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 4. Now, this is the longest passage we're going to look at together. I'm going to make some brief comments. I want to get us to the application that the writer to the Hebrews gives of the idea that Jesus is God and King. Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. Look with me at 1, 1. Here's how he begins his argument. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is, Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What did he just say? He said, Jesus is God's final and best word. Jesus is God's final word long ago. Many times, in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. If you're a parent, inevitably, at some point, you've said to your children, and that's final. In other words, I've said what I've got to say on this. There's nothing more to be said. It's final. Brothers and sisters, you see what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. Jesus is God's and that's final. I've said all that I need to say. I've said all that there is to be said. I've revealed myself in my son. Jesus is God's final word. He reveals to us what God is like. And not only that, but he is God's best word. In other words, he is the clearest expression or communication from God. Why? Listen to how he's described. He has been appointed the heir of all things. Everything belongs to Jesus, through whom he also created the world. Everything was made by Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Suffice to say, Jesus is God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the one who's made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become superior. There's better to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The point is this. As we continue to move through this passage that ends in chapter 2, verse 4, the point is stop trying to hear additional words from God. We spend so much time going, I wish God would tell me. I wish God would speak. I wish God would make it clear. God has made it clear in his Son. And the application of what he's going to say is, stop worrying about additional words. Pay attention to what already has been said. There's enough to pay attention to there. 
Jesus is God's final and best word. Jesus is superior to the angels. Look at verse 5. Now understand, if you're a Jewish reader of the book of Hebrews, this is about to blow your mind. Who could be better than the angels? I mean, the angels were God's messengers to give the law to the people through Moses, Acts 7 to 53, Galatians 3, 19. Who could be better than the angels? Now, I'm not going to cite every one of these references. If you have a Bible, you can track them down. I encourage you to do that. But you can tell just by looking at the page in front of you that what comes is a dizzying array of quotations from the Old Testament that show us just how superior to the angels Jesus is. We've got two, uh, one from the Psalms, one from 2 Samuel, that describe Jesus as son. Look at this, verse 5. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now the context of both of those references aren't speaking simply of a father-son relationship. No, to be the son, Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, is to be the king. So there's a declaration of the royalty of Jesus as the writer pulls back into the Old Testament and applies these things to Christ. He is the king. What can we say of the angels? From Deuteronomy, the angels are to worship the king who comes into the world. According to Psalm 104, he, God, makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Jesus, the son, is king. Angels are to worship and serve him. He's superior. Then we have two references to the eternality of Jesus. That is to say, he's not only king, he's the king forever because he is God. Look at verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Verse 11, they will perish, but you remain. Verse 12, you are the same, and your years will have no end. Jesus is king. The angels worship and serve him. He sits on his throne forever. And then the climax of all of these references come here, comes here in verse 13. Psalm 110, to which of the angels has God ever said, sit here? Sit here next to me. Sit in my presence. Sit on a throne. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Angels, he says, well, they're sent out to serve those who inherit salvation. Jesus is king. Angels serve him. Now, if you're sitting here this morning going, well, what in the world does that have to do with me? I've never been tempted to think angels are better than Jesus. What do, what do I make of this passage? Here's the beautiful thing, friends. The Bible not only explains things to us, it applies them for us. Look at chapter 2. Here we go. Therefore, verse 1, in light of all that I've just said, Jesus is king. Angels serve and worship him. He rules forever. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. Stop. Follow me here. Here's a group of people that understand that the angels brought the law. And that the writer says to them, if the angels brought the law and disobeying the law meant punishment, punishment of death, 
and Jesus is better than the angels, what do you think is going to happen to those who neglect Jesus? So, better pay more careful attention, much closer attention, he writes. I love this because it doesn't matter who you are along your Christian journey, You've got to pay closer attention. I read my Bible five times a day, someone says. Good on you. You need to pay more closer attention. I became a Christian yesterday. Good on you. You need to pay much closer attention. I've been following Jesus for 15 to 25 years. Congratulations. You need to pay more closer attention. It doesn't matter who you are. You can't pay close enough attention to Jesus. We must, he says, pay closer attention to what we have heard, that is the message of the gospel, lest we drift away from it. Have you ever had this experience? I'm sure you have. You go to the beach, and you, you kind of set up. You've got your chairs, you've got your books, you've got your sunscreen, you've got your boogie board, you're ready to go. And you think to my, yourself, I'm going to have myself a little dip in the ocean. You go into the water, 25 minutes later, you look up at the beach to find your towel and you go, where'd my stuff go? Because you're, you know, 40, 50 feet down the, the, the line. You've drifted. That's the analogy or the, the uh, imagery here of we better pay close attention so that we don't drift. It's not that when you were on the beach, you decided I'm going to move down the ocean away from my stuff. It's just that you weren't paying attention to the fact that you were going along with the current for the last half hour. And before you know it, you can't see your stuff. Let me just be honest with you because I love you. I love you all so much. And I'm going to be held accountable for telling you what needs to be said, not what you want to hear. I, I just have to tell you, if, if you're not paying careful attention to this word, you are in terrible, terrible danger. You're drifting. And God forbid you look up and say, where is Jesus? If you're just sort of coasting, lazy about reading your own Bible, if you come to church and think, man, the sermon's just something I gotta get through in between the music, which I really like, and talking to my friends in the lobby, which I really like, you're in trouble. We have to pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This is why, loved ones, this is why this whole gospel-centered approach to ministry that we talk about, it's not that we're trying to be trendy. We didn't read it in a church growth book. We're staying gospel-centered because we understand if I don't hear this message and pay close attention to it, closer attention than I am now, I'm going to drift I need this message to be beat into my head over and over and over again. This is the one who made purifications for sins. Well, let's get serious about the word, about the gospel. Read your Bible. Text verses to each other. Get into a growth group. This is not a game. It's just a love. And I, I feel like in our Baptist context in particular, we've created a category of people who we say, you know, they, they prayed the prayer, they accepted Jesus, but they never get on with growing. That's not a category in the Bible. You know what the Bible calls that person? An unbeliever. Drifting. It's not that you 
sort of purposely moved away. It's that you weren't purposely anchored. And so you just drifted. You see how practical this is? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's supreme. He's superior to the angels. Open up those ears. Secondly, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father shows us that Jesus is the high priest. Chapter 8, verse 1. Let's make our way through this book. We've kind of wandering through the, the uh, part of the book that talks about Jesus as being better than Moses. And we're coming right on the heels, the end of the section which declares that Jesus is better than the high priest. Now, when you go home and you read uh, the book of Hebrews on your own straight through, which I know you all will, um, you're going to get to chapter 8, and you're going to have been through all this stuff about Jesus as the great high priest, and you're going to go, what on earth is he talking about? What is the point? Well, good news. Look at verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. That is delicious. Here we go. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts. According to the law, they serve as a copy and shadow. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. At this point, if you're reading the book of Hebrews, you have heard quite a bit about Jesus as priest. What does a priest do? Priests offer sacrifices for the people. They slaughter bulls and goats to atone for the sins of the people. They teach the word of God to the people. They stand as a representative of God to the people and of the people to God. They're a mediator. They're a go-between. And at this point in the letter, you have heard, if you've read, if you're reading straight through, that Jesus is a priest was tempted in every way as you are, and yet was without sin so he can sympathize with you. Nothing that you've faced, nothing that you're tempted with, Jesus hasn't also been tempted with. You have heard of the fact that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're not ready for Melchizedek, but he's a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Thirdly, you've heard that Jesus has offered once and for all a sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. And here, now the focus turns to what Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father. We know from the first part that he's superior to the angels. And what is he doing? He's waiting for his enemies to be a footstool for his feet. But what is Jesus doing now at the right hand of the Father in this aspect of being a high priest that affects the way that you live today? Let me tell you. Here what the writer does is he takes us right into the throne room of God. He takes us into heaven itself. You see that in verse 1? We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now look at verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. In other words, you can't be a priest in the Old Testament unless you're offering sacrifice. We're calling Jesus a priest, so what did he offer? Look with me at chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. This is amazing. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service. Get that word stands in your head. 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Get that word repeatedly in your head. Which can never take away sins. Put that phrase, never take away sins, in your back pocket. Combining all of those aspects, this must be the most futile verse in the entire Bible. Always standing, always sacrificing, accomplishing nothing. You see that? Always standing, same sacrifices, never take away sins. Always standing, always sacrificing, never accomplishing anything. Verse 12, but here's the contrast. When Christ had offered for all time a single one-time sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In the place of standing, we have a Savior who's sitting. In the place of repeatedly, we have a once-for-all sacrifice. And instead of can never take away sins, we have a Savior who took away sins. This is the high priest that the writer points us to. This is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we live our lives on a self-atonement quest. You know you do, and I know I do. And what I mean by that is when you're, when you're confronted, when you're faced with the reality of who you really are inside, your first instinct is, i got to make that right. i got to do something. Yesterday, I traveled to see my sister for the first time in a year and a half. Oh, it was amazing. I drove to Perry, Ohio, and came back. And as I was driving home, I took a little detour through Green. That's my hometown, Green, Ohio. I like to do that because when I lived in Green, I wasn't a Christian. So if I drive to my old haunts, it's just a reminder of what Jesus has done to change my life, and it fills me with remorse, but it fills me with joy. And so I drove through the high school parking lot, actually got out of my car and walked, walked towards the front doors and back and just remember what that was like. And went and pulled into a, a driveway at 2273 Greensburg Road. That means nothing to you. But for me, 2273 Greensburg Road is where I live from the ages of 19 to probably 22 or 23. And I, I, I pulled in, and I pulled into the back, and I took a picture of the house, and I sent it to a couple of friends that I live with, but I was overcome with nostalgia but grief. Because here's the thing. As I look at those doors, I know what I did in there. I know what happened at 2273 Greensburg Road. I know what it's like to be far from the Lord. And in that moment, as I was kind of overcome with remorse, even talking to Kelly about it at home later in the evening, just, man, I just regret who I was before Jesus so much. And my, my default is, to, I got to, all right, be a better pastor, work harder, do harder, you know, the whole thing. But in that moment, who forgot what Jesus did? God didn't forget. Jesus didn't forget. I forgot. But check this out. Every time God looks to his right as he's seated on his throne, all he has to do is look right and go paid in full. Paid in full. God just looks to his right-hand man and says, you are paid 
in full. It's not what you know, is it? It's who you know. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you have a man on the inside, as inside as inside gets, next to the throne who bears the scars that he incurred in paying the penalty for your sin. Why isn't anyone saying amen? Paid in full, just looks to his right. There's nothing left to do. He sat down. What did you do Friday afternoon? Let me ask you, what did you do when you went home? You work your fingers down to the bone all week. You come home on Friday and you find the coziest couch or lazy boy you can. You make yourself the largest bowl of ice cream you can and you sit down. I'm sorry I'm projecting, but that's what you did, right? Nothing left to do. Jesus sat down. Nothing left to be paid. Complete and total atonement for those who trust in Jesus. Do you see the difference that makes in your life? You feel weighed down by guilt. I sinned again. Look right. I encourage you to actually begin that habit of looking right. You feel guilty, look to your right and remind yourself of all that God has to do to remind, not that he's forgotten, but you understand for the sake of illustration, to remind himself that you are paid in full. Look right. He goes into this deal here in chapter 8 on the heavenly and the earthly tabernacle, and he tells us there, look at verse 4 and 5, he tells us that when Moses was uh, given instruction about the tabernacle, he's told to make it exactly according to the pattern, the heavenly pattern, so that what we see in the Old Testament about the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the priests, it's like a Lego model. It's, you, know, you go to buy a Lego model of the Eiffel Tower. You build it. No one's confused that it's a real thing. But it helps you understand what the real thing looks like. And so, friends, we value our Old Testaments because as we read about all those sacrifices and the futility of the priests, it makes us stop and go, thank God I've got a priest that sat down. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is... High priest, thirdly, finally, I, I, I mean, I'm already at 30 minutes and I'm not even tired, so I'm sorry, I just love Hebrews. Third, and finally, he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let's look at chapter 12. Here we go. He's, he's round in third base. He's bringing us home. He's applying all of these things about Jesus being better. He's God's best by way of revelation. He shows you who he is, and therefore you've got to listen to him. He's God's best in terms of redemption. Um, he is the best high priest with the best sacrifice, paid in full, at the right hand. Thirdly and finally, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith, chapter 12, 1 and 3. Therefore, he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, it's all of chapter 11, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us run. Now, everything he says here is building on the strength of chapter 11, the list of names. We call it the Hall of Faith very often. I drove by the Football Hall of Fame, this weekend, Kobe Bryant rightfully inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame this weekend. If we're not careful, 
We're going to begin to think about chapter 11 in the way that we think about the halls of fame that we have in our culture, but that's not what the author is doing. If we think about this as a who's who of the Old Testament, we're going to have some questions as we continue through Judges. Look at verse 32 of chapter 11. What more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon. You mean the guy who had to lay out fleeces? Yes. Barak, you mean the guy who wouldn't step up and had to have Deborah take the lead? Yes. Samson, you mean the guy that just wanted to lift weights and hang out with good-looking girls? Yes. Jephthah, the one who sacrificed his daughter? Yes. These are knuckleheads. They're commended not for their actions, they're commended for their faith, and they stand, according to the book of Hebrews, as a great cloud of witnesses to what? Witnesses to Jesus. They point us to Jesus. And we need people to point us to Jesus if we're going to run. Run with endurance. Remember that don't stop. Keep going. It's hard. One foot in front of the next. We need people to help us along that way. I ran one marathon, and if it wasn't for Adam Brooks, I can guarantee you I would be up here saying I've run zero. That's a fact. He helped me every step of the way. No pun intended. Ran with me, encouraged me, texted me, kept me accountable. He was my running partner. We need a great cloud of witnesses that can point to the, the, the path and say, just keep running. You're doing fine. Just, it's hard. Just keep going. In light of this great cloud of witnesses, he tells us we've got to lay aside every weight that are, that's things that aren't necessarily sinful that hold us back. It's like a runner taking off their outer garment so that they can run. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, some of us got to turn off our cable news. This is keeping us from following Jesus. Some of us have got to quit being obsessed with sports. That's signing up for every sport that's offered and being glued to the television so that we, you know, it's keeping us from following Jesus. Some of us have got to put our family dynamics in the right place. Family's great and uh, or, uh, appointed by God. It's a beautiful thing, but it's not the church. It's not Jesus. These are weights that hold us down from running. We've got to cast off the weights. We've got to repent of our sin, and we've got to run. Look at this. Verse 1, run with endurance the race that is set before us. How are we going to do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I would translate that. No one's ever asked me to translate the Bible. No one ever will. I would translate founder as trailblazer. What he's saying here is that Jesus is the example par excellence of enduring when it's hard. He set the pace. How did he do that? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That is to say that as he looked at the shame and the sorrow of dying on the cross, he compared that, he weighed that next to the joy of being seated at the right hand of the Father, and he went, oh, that's nothing. In light of eternity at the right hand of the Father, the cross is utterly endurable. So look to him. Look to him. Follow the one who suffered and then was glorified. That will be your situation as well, suffering and then glory. I was talking to my friend Nick, who's uh, from the deep south. I mean, as deep south as you can get. He's from Louisiana. Nick Spurgeon. Good name. He's going to preach here next, next uh, fall. We're going to advertise Spurgeon as preaching at First Baptist Church. But I was talking to him, and he, you know, he's, he's this deep south guy, and I was saying, Nick, 
I love this idea of, of Jesus as the archegos, the trailblazer, the one who sets the course for us. And he said to me, he goes, yep, Mike, you got to run in his ruts. I said, you got to what? He's Mike, you got to run in his ruts. He made the ruts, man. You just got to run in them. And it's brilliant. You do. You got to run in his ruts. We follow after Jesus with our eyes on him. You know, when I was running, one of the things I did, as any self-respecting man who's never run before would do, I Googled, how do you run? Don't make fun of me. You'd have done the same thing, right? How do you run? And the temptation is, I'm going to shout because I'm moving from the microphone. The temptation is when you run, you want to look at your feet and make sure that you're not going to trip up. But in actual fact, if you do that, you will trip up. What you want to do is you want to look at the goal. You want to look at the horizon. In the analogy, you want to look at Jesus, not at all the stuff that makes it hard. How am I going to just put one foot in front of the next? I've got to look at Jesus. It's hard. Following Jesus is hard. I sinned again. It's hard. You've got to run. I'm getting beat up with health concerns. It's hard. You've got to run. I've got an unbelieving spouse or child giving me grief. It's hard. You've got to run. You're a high school student, and you're being made fun of because it's not cool to follow Jesus. And let's just keep, keep it real. It's not cool to follow Jesus. It's better, but it's not cool. It's hard. You've got to run one foot in front of the next until the finish line, following the trailblazer and the perfecter of our faith. He set the course. Run in his ruts. Heard a story. Close with this. I heard a story of this man. It actually brought me to tears. I was listening to him on a podcast tell a story. He's from Boston area of Massachusetts, so real gritty, you know, if you've ever met somebody from Boston. And um, he had been a heroin addict. So he decided he was going to go through the suffering of getting clean, good on him. And uh, he moved into this house. He had his daughter living with him, and he was living with one of his friends. His daughter was on the Internet goofing around. She found a, a, a triathlon in the Boston area. said, Dad, you should run it. Without knowing what he was getting into, he said, sure, I'll run it. Um, and it was, it was sort of an abnormal one. It was uh, three parts, like any triathlon, but it was biking, kayaking, running. So he starts training for it. He's like, I, I might win this thing. Um, he shows up with his bike and looks at the other guys and girls in the race, and he notices they're strapping their feet into the pedals. He's like, I didn't even know that was a thing. So here's a guy, he's showing up for a triathlon with a huffy, basically. He's completely ill-prepared. He doesn't have a real kayak. He finishes the biking part, gets on the kayak. He's like, man, I'm pushing on the water. Wouldn't even move. Couldn't even get there. Eventually, he finishes the kayaking portion, and now he's running. Right? He's at the, the tail end of the race. Endurance, right? He's running. He gets to, you know, 50 feet from the finish line, and he says, I see my daughter, who my whole life has just looked at me like my dad's a complete goof. And I see her looking at me, and I can see the pride in her eyes. And he says, I, I'm running, and I put my foot in a, in a pothole, and I tripped and I fell. And I just couldn't get up. I was done. And he said, one of the guys who had already run the race, here, great cloud of witnesses, one of the guys who had already finished, came out from the finish line, put, put your arm over my, my shoulders, he said, listen, man, 
The guy who won finished a couple of hours ago. But I'll tell you what, tomorrow no one's going to know his name. But if you will get up and finish, nobody's going to forget you. Just get up. Being encouraged by this witness who's already run the race, he sees his daughter on the finish line, and he I got to get up. He gets up, runs a couple of feet, falls down. I can't get up. Come on, man, get up. There's your daughter. Keep going. Happens over and over again. Finally, the daughter comes out across the finish line, puts her hands on her waist and says, Everybody, that's my dad. He said, man, I got across that finish line so fast. For the Christian, this Christian race is it's just that. It's, it's seeing Jesus, being, being um, desirous of that well-done, good and faithful servant. When it gets hard, having people around us, the saints of the Old Testament, the people in your church saying, you got to get up. There's Jesus running his ruts. Go, come on. Jesus is better. He's at the right hand of the Father. Listen to him. Pay careful attention to him. Get serious about this gospel. Look right when you're weighed down with the guilt of sin and fix your eyes on him and just put one foot in front of the next and do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Who said this was easy? I hope you never got that from me. But it is better. He's at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Let's go before him in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you and praise you for this word. Lord, I pray that you would impress it upon our hearts. Lord, I pray especially this morning for the one who's prayed a prayer or made a profession but never has paid attention Pray that you would convict his or her heart and turn them to yourself. Pray for each and every one of us that no matter where we are, no matter who we are, that we would understand that we have need of paying even more careful attention to the gospel, not less, more than we are. Pray that you'd help us to look right. The man at your right hand who paid our debt in full. And as we keep our eyes fixed on him, seated at your right hand, help us to run, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. As far from being a disinterested God, you are the one who put on human flesh and ran the race as our trailblazer before us. Lord, help us to run in your ruts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why don't you stand with me, friends? I, it's a great, great morning. It's great to be with you. I want you to receive the Lord's benediction here from the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I love you. Go run the race.